Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hello, welcome to the new season. Wait a second, we need some trumpet here. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and I am so excited to share with you my new format for this season. Each episode, like last season, will lead with a historian author interview. That will then go to the next segment called Ask the Expert, where I ask an expert in a specific subject your questions. Today's expert is historian and author Matthew Lewis. And lastly, I'll tell you a brief history on a person from the Tudor period, like I used to. Now, I know how much you hate to hear me advertise for Patreon, so I'll make this quick. If you enjoy what you hear and would feel so obliged as to become a patron, I will be eternally grateful. But first, I do have to thank all the newest patrons since the last episode. Veronica K, Shana, Deborah, Jennifer H, Kelly R, Richard M, Lee C, Natasha, Shirley W, Vicki E.R, Melanie R, Tammy H, Kelly E, Kayla M, Helen A, Candy M, Becca K, Maya C, Lee O, Kathy H, and Heidi H for increasing your pledge. Oh my gosh, so many patrons since the last episode. Thank you so very much. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Oh, and this month, all patrons are put into a drawing to win an amazing Henry VIII one-of-a-kind mini sculpture. All right, let's get on with the show. My guest today is author and historian Allison Weir. Allison's fifth book in her Six Tudor Queen series was recently released, and she's here today to talk with us about Catherine Howard and Tudor Court. Plus, Allison will answer one lucky listener's question. And then at the end, I have a new question game that we play. I hope you enjoy. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi there, Rebecca. Uh, you know, I wanted to welcome to the show today to discuss your new novel, Catherine Howard, The Scandalous Queen. But before we get into that, I'd love to learn what it is that inspired you to write your Six Tudor Queen series. It was one of those eureka moments. I was sitting in my agent's office in October 2014. We're discussing ideas for new novels. And we're talking about three novels on Richard III and the fall of the Plantagenets. I'm thinking, I don't know that I want to live with Richard III for the next three or four years. And suddenly came to me in an, in an instant, six novels on the wives of Henry VIII. And, and I thought, no publisher is going to take six books, do a six book contract. I said to my agent, I've had another idea. And I didn't tell it was in the last few seconds, but I just knew instantly this was going to be the project I wanted to do. And when I told him, his face just lit up. I've never forgotten that moment. He said, leave it with me. I know which project I could sell more easily. And I had three publishers in line for it. So I ended up with a wonderful headline and I'm internally grateful for that. What a great story. I mean, we all adore the six Tudor queens so much that this was a brilliant idea to be able to tell their story. 
Thank you. And it's it's been told in rather a different way because my, uh, my my remit is to write each book solely from each queen's point of view. So you do get a rather different angle. For example, when Catherine Howard has been arrested and she's in the Tower of London, she doesn't know what's going on. She knows nothing about the interrogations or what's going to happen to her. Uh, she has no idea of the scale of the investigation. So, you know, you get a rather different perspective and you have to sift through the, all the evidence and think, what would they have known? Well, that leads me to my next question. You know, you're, you've now reached book five out of six. What influenced the path that you chose for Catherine Howard in your story? It, she she developed, these stories develop organically. I, I re-research. I, I brought out a book in 1991 called Six Wives of Henry VIII, and I've updated that research and literally rewritten it and expanded it. Um, and so I go with, I have a very, very um, detailed historical text, and I literally fictionalise it. But of course, history doesn't tell us everything. The, the novelist's job is to is to fill the gaps and to understand about motives and emotions and things like that. And she just emerged organically from it. And and I, you go with the sources. Sometimes I don't know where the book's going. I might have an idea and I might have an idea of something I want to do that might be slightly controversial, but I would not do that unless there was evidence, however slender, to back it. But with Catherine, I, I knew I had I had I knew, had so much evidence from all the depositions taken after her arrest that I, I had to chop them up and put them in chronologically as to when these events actually happened. So it emerged from that. It was quite interesting to see how it emerged and you know what was happening to her and what what you know the different relationships in her life. I've been dabbling myself in writing some historical fiction and nonfiction, but I've recognized that I'm stronger at writing nonfiction. Have you had any issues with going between the two? I did to start with, yes, because back in um, 2002, I, um, I, I wrote a, a novel. I wanted to see, it was before then, I wanted to see if I could write fiction. And it was a, it was a project. It was it was a spare time project. It was a hobby. It wasn't anything done for publication. And I, I, I was researching Anna of Aquitaine, and I and I wrote this novel called um, uh, Light After the Darkness about Lady Jane Grey. And I really enjoyed it. I wrote it in two months, and 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 I I so liked it. I thought I'm going to show this to my agent because I couldn't judge it. So he came back. He said it's a riveting story, but it's faction. You've got to stop sitting on the fence, stop being a historian and start being a novelist. So I put it back in a drawer and forgot about it. And then a few years later, I thought I'm going to write it again. And, and I rewrote it first person, present tense with different narrators. And that was the book that was commissioned. But I was told that I would have to do quite a bit of work on it because writing fiction, as you know, is a far more, is a very different, different thing from writing nonfiction. Oh my God, it is so much more complicated. Is this, because if you're writing biography, for example, you know, the life of Henry VIII or something, you start with his birth and end with his death. Virtually, you follow a chronological thread. With fiction, there are so many ways in and 20, you can show it to 20 different fiction editors and they all have a different view. So, you know, it's, it's, there are lots of choices to be made. I originally started writing historical fiction because I've been um, researching Thomas Seymour for the last four years. And of, of course, no, a lot more than I do. 
<laughs> there, there's so many unknowns to his story that I wanted to be able to answer those questions for the readers. You know, this is why he didn't marry until he was 40. This is why he didn't do that. And so that's why I started doing the fiction, because I wanted there to be more of the story. And then as I was writing, I realized this is still coming out factual because that's what I'm more comfortable writing. So I finished, I think I wrote 72,000 words and just put it on the shelf. And I said, someday I'll go back to that. Let me finish my biography first. You do need a biography of Thomas Seymour because there are so many unanswered questions. I've tried to, to show him in a more rounded sense. He's not just the swashbuckling Errol Flynn type, you know, in this novel. He's a politician as well. He's, he loves the sea. He's an admiral. And he's got a political life as well. And of course, the, his marriage to the Queen bring, brings that closer to his domestic life. But um, I, find, I find him a fascinating character. And I know one or two readers have made comments or they think I've been unfair to him in previous books. I'm not so sure about that. But I do think I wanted to portray him as more a more rounded character character. Have you changed your view having done the research? You know, when I went into my research, initially it was here, I want to claim clear his name. I want everybody to see that he wasn't as terrible. And then I, I reached that point where I went, well, I have to look at the evidence and okay. I can't bring in my personal feelings of why I think. Start um, with a view. You have to clear your head of everything. Yeah. So what I've been able to do is look at the evidence and translate it in a way that maybe people haven't looked at it before and say, hey, look at this. This is what happened. And here's here's why I think it happened. And here's my evidence to back it up. So I'm really excited to eventually get that out there for for people to see. But it's going to take a long time. <laughs> I know, but it's quite a complex subject. I hope you do, because it's, you know, it's it's original research. We haven't had a biography of Thomas Seymour. Yeah. And it's overdue. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't have you on here to talk about Thomas Seymour, and I always end up somehow talking about him with every guest. <laughs> six. I've just finished six. So yeah, I'm close to the subject. Anyway. <laughs> Let's go back to Catherine Howard, because one of the things, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, was Catherine Howard the only one of Henry VIII's wives who was not a lady when they married? That's right. She was Mistress Catherine Howard. Her father was Lord Edmund Howard. It's a courtesy title. So she was Mistress Catherine Howard, not Lady Catherine Howard, as she would have been if he'd been an earl. So how unusual was that, that a queen consort was not a lady prior? It is quite unusual. In fact, um, in, uh, before, before Henry VIII's reign, there had only been one commoner as a queen consort, and that was Elizabeth Whitville, the queen of Edward IV, Henry's grandfather. And he married her for love, which was considered absolutely scandalous at the time or akin to insanity by the English nobility. But um, Hen but, um, but when had so when Henry went for Anne Boleyn, it was felt that she didn't, you know, she wouldn't, um, uh, she wasn't suitable in, in certain ways, and that's why he elevated her to the peerage before he married her. But he didn't bother with that with Jane Seymour, who was another commoner. Uh, she was a knight's daughter, and uh, and and so and so was Catherine Parr. They were of the lowest rank of Henry's wives. And Catherine had quite a few siblings. Do you have any idea what kind of relationship she had with them? 
very little. I mean, her brothers were quite close to her, I think. And I think she had, she said she had siblings and half siblings. So it was two sets of families with five children in each. And she was very close to her half sister, Isabel Lady Bainton, who's quite a strong character in the novel. And also to her, her another half sister, Margaret Arundel. Um, but she had brothers and she, they, they were older than her. And they were probably brought up apart from her possibly in the Duke of Norfolk's household, as I've shown in the novel. And so she wouldn't have had so much to do with them. But there does seem to have been a certain amount of affection. They were at court, probably due to her influence. I vaguely remember seeing something about Thomas Seymour going somewhere with a Charles Howard. I think it was Charles. It was her brother, half-brother. He got himself into trouble because he had an affair with Margaret um, with Margaret Douglas, the king's niece. All right. And- 1540 that just sort of coincided with Catherine Howard's with Catherine Howard's fall so he was banished from the court and the privy chamber he went soldiering went abroad um Thomas Seymour comes into Catherine Howard's story because um he was delegated to take charge of her jewels after after her arrest one of the things that we hear so often about Catherine Howard is about her being naive do you truly believe that Catherine was naive to a degree, I think she was naive when men were concerned. Uh, I think she sort of threw herself heart and body and soul into these relationships. And um, then she tired of men quite quickly, but she didn't quite know how to deal with the fallout from it. And uh, she was, I think, I think, I have to say, it was pretty naive of her to carry on an affair uh, with, with Thomas while she was married to Henry VIII, given the example of her cousin, Anne Boleyn, and what had happened to her. Because Anne's rise to power and her fate, a fall, would have been so well known in the, in, the, in, the, in the household in which Catherine was brought up, that of the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, who was her guardian. Uh, the Dowager Duchess was, uh, you know, carried Anne's trainer, her coronation. The Howards were in disgrace after after Anne's fall. So Catherine would have felt the fallout from this. She must have been, she would have been aware of what Anne, you know, Anne, Anne's, Anne's supposed crimes of adultery. And why it beggars belief that she would have put herself in the same situation. But I don't think it was just, the, the, as far, this is where I think Catherine was naive because I think Culpepper had an agenda and I think Lady Rochford, who acted as go-between, also had an agenda. I'm always blown away when I see that letter that um, Catherine Howard wrote to Culpepper. Yes. And and she just puts it all out there and you go, what is the matter with you? (laughs) You want to shake her. (laughs) Exactly. She's courting such danger. But to be fair, when this affair was, because she was involved with Culpepper before um, before her marriage to Henry, and um, she had to she had to end it, of course, because you know the king took precedence. But when it was revi- it was revived at a time when the king was very ill and his life was despaired of, and I think they all thought that Henry would die soon and that Catherine would be a rich widow. And therefore, I think, you know, she thought, well, maybe, you know, and, and also if, if she didn't think, I'm sure she did think the king would die very soon because of the state of his health. If not, she probably thought he was so besotted he might, with her, he might forgive her. I always wonder about um, Catherine Parr. I'm going to keep jumping back and forth here. But it sounds, you know, what you just said just strikes home with the Catherine Parr story, where we hear that she was in love with Thomas Seymour beforehand. The the king came according. She couldn't really say no. She said, this is what God wanted. And I wonder if she felt the same thing, like he's an old guy. He's not healthy. Maybe if I just wait a few years, Thomas and I can be together again. It crossed her mind. Yeah, 
given the state of the king's health by 1543. You know, I mean, people have speculated that, you know, we know now she wasn't just a nurse to him and that she wouldn't have done actual nursing duties, though we do read of her with his leg in her lap. But perhaps that was just she supported him and it was an affectionate thing. But, um, you know, he was very he was very poorly and he had a flower, sort of last flowering of health and vigour in, in 1544 when he went to France. But after that, he went downhill very quickly and it was just up and down, up and down the whole time. So I think she must have known that she might have been free in a few years time. Right. Well, you mentioned Lady Rochford, and I do want to touch base on the villain who she's been made out to be over the years. One of the things that I want to ask you about is, you know, the well-known Victorian um, historian, Agnes Strickland. We always have to (laughs) we have to question. Uh, Yes. (laughs) One of the things that she um, reported in the lives of the Queens of England was um, the last words of Lady Rochford. Are you familiar with them? Yes, but they come from a source called Letty, um, Gregorio Letty. And oh. it's a source. Now, he did have access to sources that are lost to us, but he was generally, by his contemporaries and ever since, being not regarded as an unreliable source. There's, it's possible that there is some truth in it, but it's not what an eyewitness reported. So I've gone with that. Oh, so can you tell us what an eyewitness reported? He just said that they all asked God to forgive, that they both asked God. He doesn't say what they both said individually. He asked God to forgive them their sins and made a good death. If if she'd said anything like that, you know, I think he would have said something about it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And I'm very familiar with Letty. I've also been researching him a little bit. And, and I see what you're saying about how some of this stuff really does come off as he probably knew what he was talking about. And then there are other pieces where you go, where on earth did you get this information? You've got to be cautious. And the trouble is you can't damn it all. This is the thing. But it's a question of picking and mixing, which is likely to be true. But I mean, I'm, I think, I mean, the sources for Lady Rochford are pretty good. We have George Cavendish, who's pretty scathing about her and who, who, who was at court at the same time as her as a gentleman usher to Cardinal Wolsey. And he died in the, he wrote in the 1550s. At the end of the 16th century, we have George Wyatt, who wrote about Anne Boleyn and spent, it was his lifetime's work researching Anne Boleyn because, of course, his grandfather, the poet Sir Thomas Wyatt, had been close to Anne before she married, here we go again, before she married Henry VIII or before Henry became interested in her. And there was a little bit of rivalry going on there. But there were stories handed down in the Wyatt family about Anne. And Wyatt made it his life's mission to amass all this, this, this evidence and to talk to other people. And he spoke to a lady, Anne Gainsford, who had served her, came Lady Zouche, and also to one other lady who he doesn't name. And he says that Jane Watchford accused Anne and George of incest. Now, he had access to really good sources, people who'd known Anne, who'd been there at the time. And also, I do believe that his that we, there is evidence to suggest that when he wrote his memorial, which was unfinished and therefore undedicated, um, that it was done at the behest of Queen Elizabeth. And because or she took over the patronage because his um, uh, because we think John Whitgift was also a patron and he was one of Elizabeth's close friends. So it's hard to believe Elizabeth didn't know he was writing this work, and it might well reflect her views of her mother. But here's George Wyatt is, and, 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 and George Cavendish are the primary sources for Jane Rochford 
um, giving testimony against Anne and George for incest. And I'm sorry, I don't think you can really overturn that evidence. Oh, boy. <laughs> I love I, one of the things that drew me to the Tudors were the scandals, you know, originally all of the scandals. It's like watching a soap opera, but it was real life. It's amazing. It's what drew me as well. At 14, I read this horror, my first adult historical novel, and it was about the Tudors. And I, my goodness, did they go on like that in those days? And of course, I rushed off to history books and found out that they did. <laughs> and I've been fascinated by it ever since because we've got for the first time in history we've got really good uh, primary source material for these scandals henry VIII's, um you know great matter his divorce from catherine of aragon brought the royal marriage into public and political focus for more or less the first time in in, in our history um we could talk about edward ii's but i mean there isn't the documentation for that but there's masses for Henry VIII's divorce. And after that, no detail of the king's private life was considered too trivial to be reported. We've got this, this fantastic record. And this, this, I mean, go back 50 years, you haven't got anything like it, but with the spread of diplomacy and, and, and of printing, you've got, you know, a far more, far more of a written record. And not to forget portraits. Portraits were huge at Tudor court. We finally got to see their faces. I know, and somebody's called them the first faces of England. There are earlier royal portraits or copies of them, but and the first real, real royal portrait, as we would call it, dates from about 1350. But it's we can actually envisage these people. We've got the remains of the magnificent palaces in which they lived. Um, it's, we, we, it's a great visual record as well. And I think this is why the Tudor dynasty fascinates us, these larger-than-life characters. We know a lot about their private lives, although not enough to satisfy all the debates. And we, there are the debates, and it's this magnificent world they inhabit, and we know what they look like, and it was basically, if you had it, you flaunted it. So, and, and you can't make up the story of the Tudors. I mean, the king was six wives who beheaded two of them. Um, you know, the, the Mary with the martyrs, a 17-year-old girl, Lady Jane Grey, who's beheaded because she's been Queen of England for nine days. And there's Elizabeth, a true survivor, uh, inheriting a bankrupt kingdom and dying 45 years later, strong on her throne, having defeated the Spaniards. It's, it's an incredible record. We're very fortunate, aren't we? Oh, we are. Absolutely. Mm. It's taking one trawling through it all when you're trying to research it, you know. <laughs> yes. And notes everywhere and files saved everywhere and it's never ending. I don't do that. I have one text and I it research into it and then I've got everything I need on each particular aspect. I craft the book. It sort of evolves. Oh, that's a good, you know, it's funny. I had Tracy Borman on, oh, probably last fall. And she had mentioned you in her interview about writing um, mm -hmm. historical fiction and how, what did she say that the advice that you gave her was to research and write the chapters as you go along? Uh, yeah, it's not quite like that. I mean, I, write, I work on the whole book. I start with the outline, which is probably the, the you know synopsis I've sent to the publishers who, when they commission the book. And then I add in and add into it. And then gradually you'll get more and more material. It'll be very unwieldy for a while. And then you divide it into chapters. And, and you know, you're literally crafting a whole book. That's for nonfiction. For a novel, I start with the, the historical script and I just fictionalise it. And of course, you have to pick and mix what you're going to do, take from that historical script. Yeah, as I say, whether my characters uh, will know about certain events and 
how you whether they're interesting enough to move the story along or hold the reader's attention. Are they important enough to be included? It's funny that you mentioned that because I was curious if when you're writing these stories, you know, you're five into the Queen series right now. When you were writing, were any of the wives or secondary characters of the book, did you feel like you connected with any of them as you were writing their story? Well, you have to get you get inside your subject's head and you do connect in a way. Um, but I'm, there's always that detachment. I'm seeing it from the I'm on the outside looking in, as it were. That's how it feels. Um, I don't feel I mean, you can Im- you could try and imagine how they feel. And that's that's what you need to do. It's using your imagination. It's being creative. But I don't get too emotionally involved. And I suppose that's the historian in me who's been, you know, you stand aside as a historian. and You stay objective. So I'm trying to see, I, I try to ask myself all the time, what, uh, what is it, what's motive, what's going on in her head, what's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about? And it's, sometimes it's very difficult to work out how a character gets from A to B in their life. Definitely. I'm curious, uh, this might be a opinion question for you, but which of Henry's six wives was or maybe could have been the best partner for him? Catherine of Aragon, if she'd born a son, and that that was her tragedy. She didn't because in every way she she was the ideal queen. She was royal, royally born on both sides, came from a, a very respected nation, brought a great dowry, um, had had beauty, uh, was very learned. And embodied all the ideals of the perfect medieval queen. Don't forget, we're just at the end of the medieval era here, just coming into the early modern age. And she would have been, if she had born Henry, her son, if her three sons had lived, or at least one of them had lived, she would have been invincible. We would have had no Queen Anne Boleyn, no Queen Elizabeth. You can just, the what ifs go on and on. But I think she, she, she was Henry's, I mean, she was better, more royally born than Henry, but she was you know, she would have been the best of his queens for him. And now I have a listener question. So I allowed one listener question um, for this episode, and I got lots of submissions, but I decided to choose one from Sharon, who's from Central Virginia in the U.S. And Sharon would like to know, before you did research on the lives of the six wives of Henry VIII, did you have a favorite wife? And did that change after you finished your research? Yes. When I started off, it was Anne Boleyn. I had a very romantic view of her. And uh, it was only when I researched her that I decided I didn't like her very much. <laughs> and I'm talking about very mature research. I didn't. Um, uh, but again, you have to be objective. And if there's anything that you could, you know, you've got to look at where she's coming from and why she behaved the way she did. I had this problem because I said I don't have a very good view of her. I told my editor when I came to write the novel, yet I want to make her sympathetic. And she said, you've got to look at her motives, how she feels, her emotions. Does she feel cornered? Does she feel threatened? And yes, it's true. I'm sure she did. And I'm sure that is behind some of it. And one only has to admire her courage at the end. And she faced a a terrible end. I mean, she was stripped of everything that mattered to her. And she faced an awful death on the scaffold and met it with tremendous courage. So you can only admire that. You can admire her feistiness, her her proactiveness. It's because of the text that that Anne gave Henry, the forbidden religious text, that the Reformation took the shape it did. So she was enormously influential. As your research continued, then who became your new favourite? Catherine of Aragon. 
I just I'd always had admired her her um, her integrity and her principles and her her loyalty and devotion. Uh, she has more traditional feminine virtues, but she could also be quite feisty when she needed to be. And I, I really do admire her. I mean, she's got flaws as well, but um, I named my daughter after her because of the, the woman of being a woman of principle and integrity. I thought she was a great heroine, a great example. All right, Alison, now we've reached the new segment, the final segment of the show that I'd like to call If I Made You Choose. Okay. Okay, so Alison, if I made you choose between Anne of Cleves or Catherine Parr, who would you choose? Catherine Parr. Mm. Suzanne of Cleves. <laughs> Which one is it? Anne of Cleves. Can I choose Anne of Cleves? All right. The next one is, if I made you choose, Anne Boleyn or Elizabeth I? Elizabeth I. Cardinal Wolsey or Thomas Cromwell? Cardinal Wolsey. Charles V or Francis I? Oh, my goodness. Now, that is a difficult one because I mean Charles probably Charles V Francis Francis greatest kings as well all right the last one this one was just for fun Edward Seymour or Thomas Seymour Thomas Seymour because I think he would have made a much better company than his miserable brother and uh, I'm, I I know I think I mean yes he's yes he's a rogue in many ways but I also think he's a, he's he's got great personality and charm and I think I think he did have a rough deal because he was the younger brother and that was the key to everything. And I think his jealousy made him behave in certain ways that he shouldn't have done. But you can understand why he did it. And you can understand why he got together with Catherine, who also felt she'd had, a, you know, she'd had a rough deal in some ways. So I think, you know, she couldn't she couldn't she didn't like the new regime. She wanted her jewels back. She couldn't get her jewels back. They wouldn't give it to them to her. And they were her right. So it was them against the world. But I think. I think I'd have liked Thomas. I think he'd been good company. I'm doing a happy dance. <laughs> I'm <glad> to hear that. <laughs> and then lastly, Allison, can you please tell everyone where they can find a copy of Catherine Howard's Scandalous Queen? All good bookshops, I hope, and um, and Amazon, of course, and online. You can get the various you know book bookstores online that you can get it. If you go to my website, worldwidewebalisonweir.org.uk, there are a list of places that where you can get where you can buy books. Alison, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. You're very kind. It's been fun. If you'd like to know the reasons why Allison chose the answers she did, become a patron at patreon.com for exclusive content. And now, ask the expert. Matthew, welcome to Ask the Experts. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be considered an expert on anything. <laughs> well, Ask the Expert is a new segment of the show. So I choose an expert on a particular subject, which in this case is you, and then have my listeners submit their questions. So today, Matthew, they have sent their questions on two of your favorite subjects, Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. Are you ready? As ready as I will ever be. We'll start out with Bev L. from Twitter. She wants to know who had the most to gain from the disappearance of the princes and who had not only the motive, but also the means to achieve it. The obvious answer is Richard III. I don't believe in trying to deny that Richard had a motive and he had the means and the opportunity to be rid of the boys. So I think, I think if you're looking for your obvious suspects, 
then Richard is definitely the man. Um, he had plenty to gain from their disappearance in terms of them not being used as a threat against him, although I question whether he gained anything in reality because of, of remaining silent about the fact that the boys were gone. You know, if, if, he, if they died, if he'd had them killed, then he would have needed to have made sure that everybody knew that they were dead. So his silence seems almost counterproductive at that point. Um, in terms of other people, I mean, Buckingham is another obvious suspect in, in if anything happened to the princes in the tower. Um, and I also think if you look at who gains from the fact that they're disappeared, Margaret Beaufort definitely gains in, in being able to champion the cause of her son, Henry Tudor. So I don't think Margaret Beaufort killed the princes in the tower because I don't think anybody did. But she definitely gains in 1483. By the end of 1483, her son is being proclaimed as a, a viable rival for the throne of England. So, no, she definitely gains from their disappearance. Um, and I think it's hard to deny a lot of those people the, the means and the opportunity as well. The Tower of London, I think people think it was a, a kind of locked up, bolted down prison at this time, but it was a fully functioning palace. There were hundreds of people in and out of it all day. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone's suggesting that Margaret Beaufort herself was climbing a spiral staircase with a knife in her hand. But, you know, in terms of being able to get someone in to do a dirty deed for you, it's far from impossible in the Tower of London. Now that image is forever going to be locked in my brain. Margaret Bro Beaufort with a with a cleaver in her hand. Yeah, it's just a bit of music. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> uh, I'm seeing um, a production in the future, Matthew. Absolutely. I'm on board. <laughs> now, to kind of follow up on that question, my assistant, Stephanie, wants to know who has been the most far-fetched subject that you've heard of and why? Hello, Stephanie. I don't know that any particular suspect is very far-fetched. Fairly recently, the Duke of Norfolk's been thrown into the pot, John Howard. So, you know, he, he gets the Dukedom of Norfolk, which had belonged to Richard, Duke of York, the younger of the princes in the tower. So it suggested that he either had a motive or that that was his reward from Richard for doing the dirty deed um, to, to regain the Norfolk title, which, I mean, it should have been his by right of, of inheritance anyway. And it was Edward IV's legal chicanery that, that made, made it go to his son. Um, so I'm not sure that there are any suspects here that are particularly far-fetched. I think accusing Henry the Seventh, Henry Tudor himself, of direct involvement when he's in Brittany at this point um, is perhaps a little bit far-fetched. But again, I don't think anyone's talking about any of these main suspects, be it Richard, the Duke of Buckingham, Henry Tudor, Margaret Beaufort, the Duke of Norfolk, anybody doing the dirty deed themselves. This is about sending people to do it. So it's having the influence um, to bring it about. So I'm not sure that there are any suspects really that are, are too far-fetched to be worthy of consideration. I think the problem for a long time has been that people have focused so much on Richard, maybe allowing for Buckingham to have slipped in there as a suspect, when I think it needs to be thrown open an awful lot wider than that. Let's move on a little bit to a question about kingship. This one came from Twitter. Looks like it came from Emma of Normandy. And she wants to know, how did Richard III shape his own conception of kingship? And was it based somewhat in Edward IV's? Um, that's a really interesting question, because I think it goes to the root of the real differences between Richard and Edward. You know, we tend to think two Yorkist kings, two brothers, they must have been pretty much the same. Um, 
but they they had very different upbringings they had very different lives and i think i think they had really contrasting ideas of what kingship was and what it meant to be king i think edward saw it as an opportunity and believed that the role was there to serve him so he got very rich he got very fat he got a lot of women he got a lot of food and he did a lot of hunting um and was less interested in playing the the game of being king in line with parliament so there's a lot of parallels really with henry the eighth especially in his early years you know this kind of image of he just can't be bothered to do the hard grind of being a king um, and Edward introduces this system of taxation called benevolences, which is sort of forced gifts to the crown. So someone would just knock on your door and say, give us 50 quid for the king and you've got no choice but to give it. And this was really a way of circumventing taxation via parliament. So this is Edward not having to be answerable to parliament and not having to play that game. You know, since kind of since Magna Carta, Parliament has developed this relationship with kings where they give taxation in, in return for reforms of, of what they see as abuses of royal power. And Edward finds a way around that. And I think Richard is almost the opposite. And this is why we get him kind of berating his brother's kingship as soon as he comes to the throne. I think Richard takes the view that he is there to serve the crown. So his role as king is to serve the kingdom. And I think that you can trace that attitude back to his time as Duke of Gloucester in the north of England over the previous decade. There's lots and lots of examples of him behaving this way. So, you know, this isn't just me having wishful thinking because I'm a, a Ricardian who wants to paint him in a good light. Lots of the actions that he takes as king in Parliament um, and, and outside as well give us signs that he was a man who believed he was there to serve England by being its king. So, for example, he does away with benevolences. He makes them illegal. Um, and this is him saying to Parliament that, you know, I'm willing to be held to account with you. I'm going to play the game in the way that my brother had refused to do. I'm going to be answerable to Parliament for everything that I do. And if I want taxation, then I'm going to have to balance my behaviour and meet with your approval in order to get that. So I think that's kind of two really opposing views of what kingship was. Uh, Edward believed it existed to serve him and Richard believed he existed to serve the crown. Um, I'm going to look at one from Facebook now. It looks like we have one from Linda Pearsall Harvey, and she wants to know, when did Henry Stafford, second Duke of Buckingham, turn against Richard? Hello, Linda. Um, this is a really interesting question. The when and the how and the why. Um, Buckingham is a, a fascinating figure. He is entirely excluded from political power under Edward IV. He is never given any offices or any authority. He's married to one of Elizabeth Woodville's sisters at a young age, but never enters into that kind of inner political circle under Edward IV. So I think from that, you, you can kind of gather that Edward IV sees something in Henry Stafford that he doesn't like. You know, as Duke of Buckingham, he's one of the senior noblemen of the realm. But Edward doesn't trust him or believe that he has enough about him to, to operate in the political sphere. And yet he's the man who very quickly becomes attached to Richard III's cause in the, the spring of 1483. And is almost the man who is, we see kind of propelling Richard onto the throne. He's making lots of speeches on Richard's behalf and seems to be helping to drive events um, towards the, the ultimate conclusion that Richard should be king. 
And so he gets involved in the October rebellions um, that happen in October 1483. So by before the end of that year, you know, Richard becomes king at the end of June. And so within four months, Henry Stafford has gone from being the man who, who put him there and the second most powerful man in the kingdom to joining a rebellion against Richard. And I think it's quite often portrayed the October rebellion as, as being in favour of Henry Tudor and that Buckingham decided to back Tudor's bid for the throne. But I'm not entirely convinced that that makes sense. I suspect there was more than one thing going on in the October rebellions of 1483. But I think Buckingham made his own bid for the throne. He has a fairly good claim to the throne. He's a descendant of Edward III. He probably has a better lineal claim than Henry Tudor does. And by the time we get to to the autumn of 1483, Henry Stafford is the second most powerful man in the kingdom behind Richard. He's been absolutely showered with rewards. He's the most powerful man in Wales by this point. And he's on the brink of getting an inheritance that Edward IV had denied him that Richard is, is just pushing through Parliament to grant to him. So he's suddenly getting this power that he's been denied for all of his life. He's the second most important, second most powerful man in the kingdom. And it's hard to see why he would sacrifice that to become second in command to Henry Tudor, who is a man who he doesn't know and doesn't know what rewards he's going to get. Um, We know that it's widely suspected that John Morton is the man who kind of pours honey into Buckingham's ear and convinces him to to stand aside and, and betray Richard. But why Morton convinces him to do that on what basis is unclear. And I think it's hard to see Buckingham acting to become kind of second in command to someone he doesn't know when he's already second in command to a man that owes him his throne in Richard. So I suspect that Buckingham made his own bid for the throne. And I think probably through that summer, he got this taste of power and maybe it went to his head. Maybe this is what Edward had seen in Buckingham that he didn't like, and which is why he kept him away from power, that that being second in command was never quite enough for Buckingham. And having seen how easy it was to overthrow a king in Edward V and replace him with someone else, maybe Buckingham thought, you know what, I could do this for myself as well. Why, why have I done it for Richard when I could make myself king? And that gets, you know, then play into does he get involved in the fate of the princes in the tower or rumours about the princes in the tower um, and all of that piles on. So I think it's got to be a process. Those October rebellions must have been being planned by the beginning of September at the absolute latest. So we go from, say, Richard becoming king at the end of June to by the end of August, kind of two months later, Buckingham has decided to betray him. And it's hard to understand exactly why. Interesting. So do you know, this is another question that Linda had, why did Richard execute William Hastings so suddenly? What was he accused of doing? He was accused of treason um, and he was taken out of a council meeting on the 13th of June, 1483 and beheaded um, within the Tower of London. Um, Exactly what happened is really difficult to pick apart. So some of the, the... contemporary sources say that there was a a commotion in the streets when this happened. Hastings was an incredibly popular man. Um, He was well-liked and well-known in London. So when news starts going around that he's been kind of summarily executed uh, on Tower Green, there's a bit of a kerfuffle and a commotion and people want to know what's going on. And some of the 
the contemporary chronicles say that Richard sent proclamations into the street uh, about what had happened, offering evidence to support the fact that Hastings had been guilty of treason. But that evidence doesn't survive anymore, unfortunately. Um, but there are interesting things that we do know about Hastings. So in later sources, we have Polydor Virgil telling us that um, Hastings writes to Richard on the death of Edward IV and tells him to come south and to get custody of Edward V. So all of that at Stony Stratford, where Richard takes possession of the person of the young Edward V. We're told that Hastings had advised him to do that. But then before Richard arrives in London, Hastings has a meeting at St Paul's Cathedral where he gathers all of the, the powerful and influential people of London and tells them that Richard's up to something. He's seizing control of the young king and we need to panic about what he might do when he gets to London and this is something to worry about. So Polydor Virgil is sort of suggesting that Hastings was up to something, um, that he was working against Richard, having advised him to do these things. Once Richard does them... Hastings then uses them as a weapon against Richard. Um, and Thomas More tells us that at that meeting on the 13th of June, that William Catesby, who was a lawyer who had been in the service of Lord Hastings before he transfers to the service of Richard III, uh, More tells us that Catesby goes to Richard and tells him that Hastings is plotting to kill Richard, quite clearly. And so there, there's all of these odd suggestions that something is going on. Um, Mike Ingram, in his latest book on the, the Battle of Bosworth, has commented on something that, that I admit you know, completely passed me by up to this point about the, the meeting on the 13th of June, was that everyone that was in that meeting with Richard, um, so this would be Lord Hastings, Bishop Morton, Archbishop of York, uh, Archbishop Rotherham, they all get arrested, but they are also men who are in receipt of a French pension and have been since 1475 when Edward IV kind of launched a, a failed invasion of France but was bought off with lots and lots of money. So these men are still drawing money from the French crown, and this is at a time when the French crown has stopped paying its pension to Edward IV and is getting onto a bit of an aggressive war footing. So in late 1482 and early 1483, we're very nearly seeing the reignition of the Hundred Years' War and fresh hostilities with France. So Richard seems to gather everyone in that room who is in receipt of a French pension and has them either arrested or, in Hastings' case, executed. So there may be suspicion that there was something going on, that they were working with some French element against the better interests of of England um i mean hastings we know had a long running rivalry with the woodville family and hated their guts so even before richard arrives in london sources tell us that there were armed men in the streets and kind of half of them for the queen and her family and half of them for hastings and you've got this kind of real tension even before Richard leaves the north. And Hastings at one point in council threatens to go to Calais and blockade himself in there if the Woodvilles are allowed to retain their power. So there is a really kind of strong sense that Hastings was up to something in the spring of 1483. Um, there's evidence of evidence being displayed to prove what he had been up to, but we don't have that to examine anymore. Um, but ultimately he was executed for treason, for, for working against the crown of England. Whether that's true or not remains to be proven. Now, on Facebook, Maria Hanna 
makes a mention of something that I've never heard of before, and I'm hoping you have and can shed a little light. She says that she had seen it mentioned on Facebook that the night before Bosworth, a young man was brought to Richard III by the name of Dickon Broom, a.k.a. Richard Plantagenet. Have you heard that story before? Um, I have. It comes from uh, Richard Plantagenet. So uh, he's he's often also called Richard of Eastwell. And this is a man who who dies in the, oh, crikey, off the top of my head, the 1550s. And he's a bricklayer who works at Eastwell, building a manor house there. And the story goes that he would always wander off in breaks and sit beneath a tree reading a book. And so he's, he's an old man by this point. You know, he, he looks like he's well into his 70s or something like that. But he would always wander off and, and sit and read a book under a tree. And the the man who had employed him to build this manor house was kind of intrigued that this bricklayer had books and was able to read. And so he constantly asked him, you know, who he was, what he was reading and all of this kind of thing. But the man was always really evasive. So one day catches him unawares and sort of snatches the book that he's reading. And it's not just a book, it's a Latin book. And this this man, Richard, is able to tell the the nobleman what, what this book says. So he clearly understands what he's reading. And so, you know, as the plot thickens, this man pesters him and pesters him more and more to explain who he is and how he, he comes to read books in Latin when he's a bricklayer. And then this man apparently goes on to tell the story that he is an illegitimate son of Richard III. And so he had been well-educated as a child, that he'd been taken to his father the day before Bosworth. And his father had said that if he'd survived the Battle of Bosworth, he would recognise Richard of Eastwell as his son publicly um, and would sort of bring him in and look after him. Um, and that if it went badly, he was placing him in the custody of a, a friend, um, a nobleman. It sometimes suggested this might have been Francis Lovell, but we don't have a name to go along with who this was. And so obviously Bosworth goes badly for Richard um, and Richard of Eastwell is taken away um, possibly to Colchester, where he learns a trade as a bricklayer and then ends up working on this estate as an older man. So there's there's other suggestions that he was actually Richard, Duke of York, the younger of the princes in the tower. But this all comes from him kind of 60, 70 years after Bosworth has taken place. Um, there is a, a parish register that notes the, the death and burial of Richard Plantagenet at Eastwell. So there is a grave somewhere in a churchyard at Eastwell um for this this man whether there's any truth to it is really really hard to pick out you know richard has two illegitimate children that he um acknowledges and looks after so why he would have had a third or any others that he ignored and set aside until the day before the battle of bosworth is unclear so yeah it, it's definitely a story but it's one that emerges kind of 50 years after bosworth and is, it comes from the man um who who tells the story and, and Richard of Eastwell gets quite, he gets a cushy life out of this story. He's allowed to build his own cottage on the site of the manor house and is a frequent dinner guest of the, the Lord of the manor to, to recount his story to anyone who'll listen to it. So, you know, he possibly has a reason to have invented all of these details. So yeah, it's, it, it's a real story. It's nowhere near contemporary. Um, and there's no real way to corroborate what this man claimed. What an interesting story. Thank you for sharing that. No, that's, it, it is a fascinating story. It's one of these odd little things that that appears. You know, this man was allowed to be buried under the name Richard Plantagenet, 
which is an odd thing in the middle of the 16th century. Um, but who he really was, we don't quite know. Well, that leads me, of course, to the question about the princes in the tower that everybody always wants to know is why. Let's see. Um, this one comes from Rhiannon um, on Facebook. She wants to know, everyone wants to know, actually, why the bones that are presumed to be the princes will not be DNA tested. Right. Good question, Rhiannon. Essentially, um, Westminster Abbey, where these bones currently are, in a, a marble urn that was designed by Sir Christopher Wren and they were put there in the, the late 17th century. Westminster Abbey is what's called the Royal Peculiar. So it belongs to the monarch. So it, it's the Queen's Church. It doesn't belong to the Church of England. It belongs directly to the Queen. Um, there's actually a parish church just up the road from me that's a, a Royal Peculiar as well, which is you know strange to have one out here in the, the middle of the countryside. Um, but there are odd stories behind why these things become attached to monarchs, although Westminster Abbey is is fairly obvious. But that means that to do anything in Westminster Abbey, like exhume the remains of any of the graves there or any of the tombs there, requires the Queen's permission. And we are constantly told, I mean, the people like the Richard III Society um, have asked on a fairly regular basis whether these remains can be exhumed and checked. And we're told that the Queen consistently says no. I think probably that has something to do with maybe being uncomfortable about the idea that these remains could be um, exhumed and, and messed around with because, you know, in a few hundred years time, that could be her and maybe she doesn't want to be in that position. Um, so, I mean, Prince Charles is an archaeology student or, or was at university. So perhaps he will have a different view on on this maybe he'd be less squeamish about it if the queen is squeamish i'm not sure if that's the right word um so possibly um in the future there might be a change of policy on this and it may be that we can get the the remains exhumed and properly examined we are in a position now that we have i mean that the the remains were exhumed once before in 1933 and they were examined but they were examined quite objectively on the basis that they were those of Edward V and Richard Duke of York and there was no real effort to identify the bones and obviously at the state of medical science in 1933 they they couldn't sex the bones so we don't know whether that's two boys or whether it's two girls or a boy and a girl they couldn't properly age the skeletons um the science in terms of of childhood development of skeletons has moved on significantly since then um they couldn't date the remains there was no um carbon dating in 1933 so we don't know what period those remains come from in terms of other remains that have been found within the tower at similar depths you, you could be looking at roman or anglo-saxon or you know iron age remains there's absolutely nothing to point to them being medieval we know that when they were dug up they were thrown on a rubbish pile and then they were collected several days later so someone had to sift through all of this rubbish and and when the remains were examined there were animal bones and there was dirt and stone and all sorts of things thrown into this urn with the human remains. The only thing now is that we, obviously medical science has moved on a lot, but we also have DNA that we could use to check those remains if any of those bones are are still in a good enough condition to contain, you know, viable, intact, uncorrupted DNA. So we've got Richard III's DNA, who was their uncle. Um, but even more um, important, uh, Dr. John Ashdown Hill, just before he passed away, was able to trace down, uh, track down a, a living relative of Elizabeth Woodville 
in a female line who has the same mitochondrial DNA as Elizabeth Woodville. So the mitochondrial DNA is the part of DNA that's passed down through a female line. So uh, a mother will pass it to a daughter and pass it on through daughters and a mother will pass it to a son, but a son won't pass it on to the next generations. So Dr. John Ashdown Hill was able to find a lady who has the mitochondrial DNA of Elizabeth Woodville, and that mitochondrial DNA would be an exact match for Edward V and Richard, Duke of York. So we are in a position now to be able to DNA test directly against mitochondrial DNA of their mother. And we also have the DNA of their uncle, their paternal uncle, um, that we could compare it to as well. So I guess the question is whether there's enough in those urns that we could test. I mean, they've been um, buried in the ground for a long time, then dug up in the 17th century, thrown on a rubbish pit, sifted through a rubbish pit, put back in the urn, re-examined in 1933. So there's potential corruption of some of that DNA. But we are in a position that we've never been in before to be able to absolutely answer the question of whether those remains in that urn are Edward V and Richard, Duke of York or not. Although even knowing that doesn't solve all of the questions. Right. That was where I was going next was even if we determine that, yes, this DNA proves that these were the princes in the tower, that still doesn't answer all the questions unless there's some way that they can determine from the bones a cause of death or something. Absolutely. And and pinning them down to a, a period, I mean, I guess the the best way that you might be able to get an idea for what is likely to have happened would be to be able to age the remains. So if if it's two boys in there and if the DNA says it's Richard, Duke of York and Edward V, um, which I don't believe it will, but, you know, I've been wrong a couple of times before in my life. If If it was them, then if we can age the skeletons properly and we can say Edward V's skeleton is 12, that means he died in 1483. If we can say it looks more like he's 15, that pushes it to 1486 and excuses Richard, you know, if it's after his death. Um, because things like radiocarbon dating are only going to give you a, a fairly wide window of when the remains are from. So they might be able to say that these are remains from the second half of the, the 15th century, but no more precise than that. You know, when they dated Richard's remains, there was quite a wide window within which he could have existed. So it will really come down to the age of those bones. But even if they're 12, it doesn't answer the question of whether Richard murdered them or Buckingham murdered them or someone else murdered them it just means they were murdered then um if they're after 1485 after the battle of bosworth kind of age it still doesn't really answer the question it points the finger more squarely at at the tudors i guess but it still doesn't really answer the question of what happened to them and who did it if it wasn't for the lack of information when it comes to the princes in the tower i feel like not as many people would be interested in that time period. It's the princes in the tower and their disappearance, I think, that might initially attract people to that era. Yeah, there's there's so much about 1483 as a year in English and British history. There's few years where we get such momentous events, but we know so little for definite about what happened and why it happened. There's a real lack of of evidence and um, so one of the the arguments that i frequently have with nathan amin is that you know henry tudor went about destroying a fair bit of paperwork when he came to the throne and that's absolutely fine i don't blame him for some of that but in particular he had to re-legitimize edward the fourth's children in order to marry 
Elizabeth of York. And in the process of doing that, he obviously re-legitimizes Edward V and Richard, Duke of York. But I think we know that he, he has titulus regis, the act of parliament that made all of Edward IV's children illegitimate. He has that uh, returned and all copies of it burned. Um, and it's struck from the parliamentary records without being read in parliament. But what we don't know is what else Henry sets about destroying. Now, if he's destroyed that act of parliament, it makes sense to me that he would want to track down any of the other evidence that proved, and I'm doing air quotes around the word proved, that Edward IV's children was illegitimate, that his marriage was bigamous. And that would include all of this evidence in 1483 that Richard had produced to, to show to the, the lords and the authorities in London, and then later to Parliament, that Edward IV had previously been married to Eleanor Butler, and therefore his children with Elizabeth Woodville were illegitimate. So Henry kind of has to destroy all of that. So we get these momentous events in 1483 between Edward IV dying and his son coming to the throne and then all of this commotion around who's the rightful king and whether uh, Edward IV's children are illegitimate and Richard III becoming king. And we have this real lack of understanding of what happened. You know, if this took place a century later, the governmental paperwork was in a much better place that we would probably have you know, the, the calendar of state papers and things like this to try and tell us what what had been happening. And I think the other thing about this period as well is it kind of falls into a record gap between the development of those kind of governmental records and the dropping off of the monkish chronicles that, that had taken us through much of the earlier medieval period. And, you know, the monkish chronicles are, are tailing off uh, and there aren't anywhere near as many of them. And the governmental paperwork hasn't really picked up to replace that. So you get these few citizens... Um, accounts of what happened, men like Walkworth and Gregory, who write their own little chronicles. They're, they're kind of London merchants who are just writing for themselves, you know, writing about what happened around them. But it means that we end up with this real kind of lack of evidence, and that leaves enough room for everyone to to tell their own stories into that space. So Richard can be the evil monster who had just been waiting for his chance to take the throne, or he can be this man who... Uh, is forced into a position of becoming king when he doesn't really want to, or he can be anywhere in between those two points. The, the princes in the tower can be spirited away somewhere to safety by Richard, by somebody else, or they could be murdered, smothered in their beds. You know, All of these things are entirely possible and no one can prove one way or another what's true and what's not. And that I think that just lends itself to this really kind of in-depth fascination because you can never quite get to the truth of, of what happens. And I, I think there's also, you know, there's a, an odd fairy tale element to it of the wicked uncle and the two innocent children. It was a little bit Hansel and Gretel sort of thing, isn't it? Um, the two young children being betrayed by the uncle who was meant to look after them. I mean, that's a fairly strong medieval moral fairy tale sort of story long before 1483. So whether the events are sort of moulded around that idea, that fairy tale, to make Richard into much more of a villain is also hard to, to pick apart. Well, let's end this Ask the Experts segment with a great question, another one by Maria Hanna on Facebook. She wants to know, Matt, based on what we know and ignoring Shakespeare, which obviously I probably don't have to tell you to do, who would you have portray Richard III in a film? Oh, this is a really hard question. Um, I think a lot of the portrayals of, of Richard always seem to make him out to be an old man. He was 32 when he dies at the Battle of Bosworth. 
and yet lots of the portrayals make him look like a man who's in his 50s or his 60s and is pretty haggard and world-wearied. So I think you have to be thinking a lot younger. I mean, Richard Armitage has always expressed an interest in playing Richard III in a movie. He, if I remember correctly, his birthday is the anniversary of the Battle of Bosworth. And I know he's he's named Richard because his dad is a Ricardian who named him after Richard III kind of thing. So he has this connection to the story and an interest in it. I'm hoping he's not listening because I'm going to say he might be a little bit too old for it now. But, um, but I, you know, he know, I know he has an interest in doing it. Um, I've always thought someone like Henry Cavill would be a really good Richard III. But, I mean, recent, someone asked me this question recently, and the first person that popped into my head was Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man at the moment. You know, he's a, a British actor, and I think he has that kind of look about him. He's not... A huge guy. I mean, Henry Cavill is probably too well built now to play Richard III, who was famously, you know, quite slender of limb. But I think perhaps someone like, you know, Tom Holland just popped into my mind as someone who I could see doing a a believable and passable Richard III. How tall was Richard III? Um, With his scoliosis, they think... Uh, he would have stood at somewhere around five foot four, five foot five. He lost about three inches or so to his scoliosis. So without it, he would have probably been around five foot eight, um, you know, which was reasonably tall for the time. You know, um, he, he's dwarfed by Edward IV, his big brother, who was six foot four. But that was fairly extraordinary for the times. So, yeah, you know, probably around about five foot four, five foot five, having lost a few inches of his height to the scoliosis curvature in his spine between richard armitage and tom holland tom holland is five eight so um richard was like six two i think it said on his wikipedia page but something interesting or i'm just going to sidetrack here for a second <laughs> tom holland's first name is thomas stanley holland well he's out then <laughs> i take back everything i said no i don't um no, what are yeah, the I'd, odds? I'd take the, yeah, there you go. It's an odd connection. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that's interesting. But yeah, you know, I can just see him, I think, in his face um, and in his demeanour and everything else. I can see him doing a passable Richard III. I'm going to have to include some pictures of these guys on the show notes so everybody can take a look and weigh in on what they think as well. Yeah, definitely. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today for Ask the Expert. Thank you for having me. And now, a brief history. The topic of madness has a rather different connotation today than it did in 16th century England, with women being at the forefront of the subject. Whether they were actually unstable or behaving with simple disobedience, it's difficult to determine where the truth lies. Furthermore, unless they were royal, or at the very least noble, women's stories were rarely recorded at all. However, I'm excited to introduce you to a woman today who may very well have been mad, but has an incredibly exciting story nonetheless. Her name? Anne Kirkall Burnell. Over the course of hours of research, we were unable to find a birth certificate or marriage date for Anne, which isn't necessarily surprising. Why would people think it necessary to record important things about a seemingly unimportant woman in the mid-1500s? 
But what we do know, however, is that she was the daughter of a butcher in East Cheap, London, whose mother died when she was very young, and her father died in approximately 1573, and eventually married Edward Burnell, who was the second son of Catholic gentry family in Nottinghamshire. In around 1579, Anne was on a trip to see her husband's mother, and on that trip she met an old woman known as the Witch of Norwell. This witch, of course another loose term thrown at women who behaved in ways that went against societal norms, told Anne that she was the daughter of Prince Philip of Spain, and that she had the arms of England on her back. She alleged that Anne was a Spanish bird who did not know her true father, regardless of the butcher that raised her since childhood. It's important to remember that the witch's claims did not include Queen Mary I, and I'll come back to that shortly. Later that year, while living in Westminster in the same lodgings as Wiseman poet Thomas Watson, Anne told him of the witch's comments, where he allegedly encouraged her delusions. Now, in our research, we actually did see it mentioned that Watson was the witch who made the initial claim of being the prince's daughter himself, but it seems to be generally accepted that Anne met him later on, told him about the allegations, and he continued to defend this claim. He is believed to have said, if you knew yourself, you would be the proudest woman in the realm. As time went on, Anne continued sharing her experience with the witch and with many of her friends and peers, including her servant, Alice Diggs. Now, she maintained the markings on her back, which really could have been anything from a birthmark to a pattern of freckles, even dirt. She maintained that they were in the shape of the arms of England and that she was the daughter of King Philip of Spain. Then, in 1586, Anne's husband Edward was potentially one of several Catholics imprisoned during the Babington Plot. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with this scheme or just simply don't remember, the Babington Plot was an effort which was started by a man called Anthony Babington. And the plot was to remove Queen Elizabeth I from the throne and instate the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots in her place. As we know now, the plan was foiled, and many involved were tried and even executed. Although Edward Burnell was ultimately released, many believe that his imprisonment contributed to Anne's instability and delusions. She had already been making the claims for some time by the time of her husband's involvement with Babington, but it's said that the late trouble of her husband and herself caused her wits to be greatly delayed. In June 1587, just prior to the Spanish Armada sailing to England, Anne proclaimed that her father would soon be coming to England. She made this announcement enough times for the Privy Council to take notice, and James Dalton was charged with investigating the situation. Anne was taken in by Dalton to live with him and his wife until the matter could be cleared up. During this time, it appears that Dalton and his wife did their best to protect Anne from the allegations against her. Her theories were starting to gain traction. People were starting to take notice. However, both Dalton and her investigators, who have actually appeared to have been quite friendly to her, defended her position. The idea that Anne was Philip's bastard was no longer the only piece of the puzzle that people began to spread. Rumors began that 
Anne was not only Philip's daughter, but potentially the secret daughter of the union between him and Queen Mary I, which, if you're following, would therefore mean that she was the rightful heir to the English throne. This claim was nothing to be taken lightly, and those who supported Elizabeth, a Protestant England in general, certainly did not. During the investigation, both Dalton and his wife maintained that although they did see the markings of the arms of England on her back, that Anne never claimed to have been the daughter of Queen Mary I. They supported her by confirming her statements, from the which originally were that she was the blood of Philip, and only Philip. Regardless of the accusations, this original investigation fortunately amounted to nothing for Anne which is actually rather quite surprising given the general mood surrounding England's relationship with Spain at the time. Some researchers say that in addition to Dalton being able to halt any punishment, Thomas Watson may also have spoken up in her defense. Sources seem to be conflicting on whether or not he believed the claims about her paternity and was in fact on her side, or if he was just simply messing with her from the beginning when he originally was encouraging those ideas. Nevertheless, Dalton was able to assure the council that although Anne's wits were troubled, she was not, in fact, a danger or threat to England, nor did she wish to be. Anne maintained her delusions for years following the investigation, and when her husband died shortly thereafter, her widowhood only heightened her mental instability. Five years later, in 1592, Anne was once again investigated by the Privy Council. This time things weren't so easy. When she was examined, it was found that there was nothing on her back at all, as she had once claimed, and the Privy Council sent instructions to the Lord Mayor of London that Anne be, quote, well whipped at the tail of a cart through the city with a note in writing upon the hinder part of their heads showing the cause of their said punishment. This penalty for lying was not only punishment for Anne, but was said to be a warning to others lest they decide to follow in her footsteps and potentially question the sinning monarch as well. If you remember earlier in the story, Anne's servant, Alice, was admittedly on her side through the entire ordeal and also maintained that she did in fact see the arms of England on the skin of Anne's back. Alice was given a lesser punishment for her role or relationship with Anne and was essentially given a scolding and sent home to live with her parents. Unfortunately, Anne Kirkall Burnell's severe punishment was carried out in mid-December 1592 when she was whipped throughout the streets of London. Just five days later, a ballad of Anne's story was published in print to memorialize the events. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.